Hello, my name is Xavier Zarr. I'm the CEO of Federation Square, and welcome to another episode of Anything But Square. Today, we'll be talking to Tony Elwood, AM, Director of the National Gallery Victoria. We'll be talking about the National Gallery Victoria's plans for the future, what we can expect when they reopen after the effects of this pandemic begin to clear, and how art and culture and creativity can bring us all together. Hello, Tony. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm very good. I'm very good. Tony, perhaps you could introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Tony Elwood. I'm the director of the NTV, a post that I've held now for almost eight years. And that means I'm responsible for the building of NGV Australia at Federation Square and also uh, NGV International, which is our building on St Kilda Road. Tony, you mentioned in your introduction that you've been the director since 2012. I was um, surprised, I guess, when I was reading up in preparation for this about just how long that is. That's that's quite a period of time. Um, I'd be really interested to hear about the journey that brought you to that role at that time. Well, I'd actually worked at the NGV twice before, so I feel like very much a product of the, the institution in terms of how I've been trained. So one of my first roles was uh, as, a, as an assistant curator and an assistant registrar of a co-shared position that I held you know, 20 years earlier which I did for um, four or five years. And then I, I moved to Bendigo Gallery and I came back after that stint as the deputy director, which I did for seven or eight years. And then I moved to Brisbane where I was the director of the Gallery of Modern Art and Queensland Art Gallery before coming coming back in 2012 as the, the director of NTV. So it, it's kind of been in my blood my entire professional life. And I've seen the institution evolve and, you know, expectations shift, you know, and going to two dual campus institution as well, which you know, was the first of its kind in our state at the time. So that was kind of a big leap to see the collections expanded so dramatically. But, you know, Melbourne's always had nationally a, a very high attendance, strong philanthropy, strong international reach as well. So it's an institution that, you know, I'm extremely proud of and it's an honour to be steering a place like this. So in that time, how would you describe the differences at the NGV between uh, 2012 and 2020? I think there's a whole new degree of accountability that public institutions now have. Various things have triggered that, but even just in the last year, if I look at the impact of Black Lives Matters, if I look at the impact of gender equity, if I look at cultural diversity on staff and in audiences, I mean, those things were at the core of who we were anyway in 2012, but there was much less scrutiny and discussion around that. And that's noticeably shifted in recent times. And, and I think that's a blessing because it's something that we're very uh, passionate about. You know, I think museums no longer are just seen as recreational places for people to pop into and that used to sort of serve a certain sort of social class. These days they are seen as a critical institution for everybody and therefore the degree of visibility and accountability is increasingly high. In fact, at this point, I say it's got to the point where it's exceptionally high. And we particularly feel it with the NGV because part of the supposed reality of being well-attended and visible is that you're also more accountable and more vulnerable to some extent too. And it's not just about art anymore. It's about how do we convey broader issues around society and how do we reach different clusters of communities and how do we actually have evidence and demonstrate that commitment. So you describe an institutional role as uh, being not just a place of visitation but part of a, a conversation, both leading and responsive and progressive would you have observed or would you describe Melbourne itself as changing over that time as well? 
good question. I think I think I would. I think we've always been seen as a particularly progressive city, very culturally aware, so, and a city of activism, a city that you know if it feels that there's some some injustice, it will take action, it will get out on the streets, and it will create uh, momentum and visibility. So I feel that yes, it has. It's a space where we don't tolerate things in society that we feel represent an imbalance or a wrong to a certain category of, of people, which is one of the things that I, I love about the city. You know, and we notice it just, uh, just you know, I see it when I'm on the square or when I'm in the gallery. You just see a far more diverse cluster of people feeling like they own the city in a way that um, makes me very proud to be a Melbourneian. I mean, you must notice that yourself just on the square when you're looking at who, you, who your audience you're catering for, that there's been that shift in demographic and ethnicity over time. Oh, look, uh, certainly. I mean, um, I'm a Melbourne boy, uh, born and bred. It's uh, it's a progressive city. It always has been. You really feel that when you travel around the country. And uh, and Fed Square is more than just a place of visitation and events. It needs to be a place of conversation, but also um, progressive contribution. So, you know, we're really keen here as a team, not just to reflect, but also to provoke and to be very clear about the things which we want to push for and diversity uh, and inclusion uh, in all its forms, uh, it's important. I think you're right about accountability. I think Melbournians and Victorians expect their institutions uh, to be more than passive in these places. Totally. And, and, and what's great about the values that you're expressing are not only do they equate with ours, but it's also very much with where I think contemporary artists and designers and creative people in general are today. As, as you said in your introduction, you've got Acme Three Heritage Trust and NGV, you've got three really significant progressive cultural institutions all contained on one side. It is a cultural side as much as anything. And all of those are stimulating conversation about shared topics and um, industry-specific needs and topics as well. Let's think back pre-COVID-19. Melbourne, very much a city defined by its human capital. You know, other parts of the country dig things up and they ship things out and they grow things in greater quantities but we are very much a creative city i think innovation and creativity are our brand and art is so central to that i suppose what we call that melbourne experience what role do you think art plays in winning that global war for talent that we're all keen to win well we know that when people are assessing the livability of a city they'd, they'd look to various key assets so it's really important that people see that you know we are inclusive and progressive but also that the city as a whole values a conversation around modern values and quality lifestyle for everybody where possible. You know, the humanities will always continue to play what is often a role that isn't taken a little for granted. We know from the evidence that people say we've been critical for many key people to sort of come and stay in our community because they felt that it was um, it was something that sort of gave them comfort. It was also international in its thinking. This scenario was in a pre-COVID world, but even in a COVID world, but people want to be connected internationally. You know, a forward-looking institution that is connected around the world can at least deliver a lot of that, even if it's digitally. That can still make you feel as though you know, you're connected to the rest of the world at its current time, and it really does feel like it's a part of a broader conversation and community told through contemporary art and design. So you describe art as a bridge spanning community differences and having a role. How do you see that playing out? How can art bridge differences in, in our community? Well, it's there to really reflect the different conversations that people are having in our history, but it's also there to have a conversation about what the future could be like. 
So whether it's a conversation around environment or sexuality or social values, but you'll find that art and designers tend to be wanting to have conversations that are slightly more uncomfortable, that are yet to be completely tackled in sort of mainstream conversational society. And that's really our responsibility, to provide that safe platform and then allow people to access that however they're comfortable. So COVID-19, I think, has shone a light on uh, the vulnerability of of our creative communities at, at a time like this, economically. What do creative communities need to do to better educate decision makers and, and the broader society about uh, their importance, their economic impact, their cultural impact? I suppose continue to just reach as many people as possible through the means that we have available to us. We have about seven different social media sites that we are actively putting content onto. I think people start to see just how committed we are, how ambitious we are, how we continue to you know, mine the collection and work it very hard so people see just what an extraordinary asset it is for an institution in this part of the world. But that also we are actively planning for the future. Um, we've had to cancel one major winter blockbuster that will be rescheduled. Other than that, we're working very hard to hang on to all content because we not only like to you know, reflect the kind of unique, sophisticated content that we can deliver to the community, but also that the, the reality is they are a major force for tourism and for economic growth and potentially even economic recovery. We actually do studies for just our major winter shows, and we use the same methodology that they use in the AFL and other sporting elements. So we know that there's, the measures are, are consistent with other forms of tourism, if you could call it that. And I know that since 2013, there have been 11 studies, and there's a combined value of over $276 million in economic impact. Effectively, 11 exhibitions have delivered that. You know, having a high-functioning cultural city can have a great economic growth and, and impact for, for any, any community. And we have to think as a business as much as we do as a strong cultural voice and, and cultural entity. Your blockbusters are a big business. They've become, if I could describe them, perhaps as almost your trademark at NGV. You've acquired uh, international exhibitions such as the Italian Masterpieces in 2014, the Masterpieces from the Hermitage, uh, the Legacy of Catherine de Great in 2015, Van Gogh and the Seasons, uh, the House of Dior uh, in 2017. Uh, you've recently uh, had great success with Cause. And you've had uh, Keith Herring and Jean-Marco Basquiat uh, at NGV International. You know, it's a, it's a long list and I'd like to understand how you go about programming these blockbusters. What are the key considerations when you select what you exhibit? What we do is we look at what are the artists that haven't really been focused on in our side of the world or haven't had their story retold in recent times. And then we look at the network that we have, which is quite extensive around the world, and we start to talk to people. And the conversations can take five, six, seven years. I've got a show that will open in a couple of years that I've been actively pursuing since I started in the role of director. So by the time it's shown, it will have been uh, probably an 11 or a 12-year lead time to pull this one off. So some of them are very slow and are about establishing a lot of trust in people around the world to lend their highly valuable and precious work. Someone can be a quicker turnaround if your 
you know, circumstances differ or your network is slightly different in that it's artistically driven mainly. So, you know, we've not seen works from Russia, from the Hermitage, what do we need to do to go out and get that? We haven't had a major fashion show like Dior ever. How do we go about doing that? And we don't know somebody, we'll cold call and then we go from there. You know, the other thing people don't realise, they say, oh, yes, well, I saw you know, Dior at Met or in Paris or whatever. They're very different business models with a show of the same scale and ambition in this side of the world. You're talking three to four times more in terms of freight and risk attached to just bringing out the cost of, of couriers and, and, and different types of, um, of crating and freighting that's required to come this far. So we try very hard, and I think we achieve a standard that approaches what you see when you go to the Northern Hemisphere, but it is much more complex because of the way that we incur so many additional overheads because of the tyranny of distance. We have to work harder than most lenders because we're not as visible. We're not a place you can get jump on a plane and see in four or five hours. It is, to, to many lenders, literally the other, other end of the earth. So how do we let them be convinced that the works will be safe, that the standards are extremely high, and that the audience is really willing? So getting large numbers for these shows is also about just proving to these lenders that it was worth their while releasing their major work for four or five months. And sometimes you don't, you don't make money from these shows. You know, you, you can't because uh, it, it's, it's a tough business to, to deliver on some of these shows. Other ones can, and then underwrite other shows that you can do that might be a bit more exploratory. So yeah, it's, it's a constant conversation. We work on exhibitions every day when we're working, always trying to see how can we continue to increase the standards and ambition of what we do. But the, the one thing that I'm very passionate about is that being a major artist or theme of, a, of an exhibition in Australia should not mean that you're seeing it in a compromised state. I think Australians have to have exhibitions that equate to the standard that they would see anywhere in the world. I'm fascinated by the, the concept of a sort of a 12-year negotiation sort of Jenga of, of collections and, and, and artwork. What is it that the NGV provides to its partners in return? I, I presume you, you would send your, uh, your works overseas as well. Oh, we're constantly lending. In some cases, it's about uh, trading works. You know, I, I can lend you this into the future if you're doing a show on X or Y. Uh, so that does help. But it's not the only way in which we operate. In fact, there'd be some exhibitions where our collection would be completely irrelevant. And so the catalyst for lending is based on a different criteria. It might just be how they like the people they're negotiating with. It can be as simple as that at times. Or it might be where certain governments have wanted to see their institutions profiled in far more remote and, in their view, exotic locations. And we just happen to be able to suit that criteria at that time. And therefore, we've got a major show out of Paris or New York. It's just that sense that uh, it's a positive thing for some people because the collection is known and valued in these far-flung places. I think that dialogue role you describe is so critically important and often forgotten. I mean, we're in an age where people and governments, leaders are, are, are turning inward, becoming more myopic and, and nationalistic. And whilst globalism is much maligned, you know, dialogue, understanding, engagement, cooperation, I mean, these are the things that will, will lift us out of the, certainly um, COVID-19, but many of the afflictions that we face. I'm really keen to hear a little bit more about how you're a card used in this, you know, dialogue um, and engagement. Well, it's not someone that we initiate. It's not, it's not that there's someone driving that for us, usually. I mean, it's, it, it, it's known that it could be helpful if you're working within certain regions and so on. 
but there's never a, an edict that you must do that. So we, we ourselves have initiated at times working within certain communities because we felt that that would benefit a broader impact for the state. And then we just go about doing it and we check that we're right in our assumptions and offer the, you know, whoever would like to leverage it to leverage it where it's appropriate and go from there. It's a big investment for the community. We're a taxpayer-funded institution. We're talking multi-million dollar investments. If, for the big shows, if we can make sure that they have an impact beyond ourselves and we're not just looking inwardly, then, then that's something we should do. You know, we're also operating at that other level where we're doing shows that are very much a celebration of local students or local artists or our Indigenous communities. And that's got another sentiment. That's about bridging and understanding and awareness and an economy at a, at a different level. You know, How does this help profile current practitioners and potential future sales and security for their careers? So you know, we go from one extreme to another and take that as a very serious responsibility. We could just randomly display things that we think are nice to do or easy to do, but we don't. We, we try and take a much more complex view of what our role can be in a community that we love and go from there. And I, I feel that there's a lot of that doesn't hit the media. We don't necessarily even publicly talk about it, but it's things that we feel give our roles far more meaning and make us more valued in our role within government, but also within the community we want to see that we're there for everybody where we can be. So let's change gears slightly. Uh, very close to our heart here at Federation Square, of course, is uh, NGV Australia. What is your vision for NGV Australia? Well, it's amazing. It's the only collection of Australian art that is exclusively in its own building. It's also regarded as the best collection of Australian art in the country. We're the oldest major public institution in the country as well. So you've got the depth of collections contained within NGV Australia. You've got a collection that has incredible richness and continues to be refined and, and expanded over time. And so it's very much about storytelling. It's about talking about our identity, nationhood, our colonial past, our indigenous past and future. It is a very, very large collection. Also regarded as the best collection of indigenous art in the country. So there's a lot of Different layers that sit within that. The decorative arts holdings are particularly refined. The works on paper are very strong. Our photography holdings are exemplary. You know, there's a lot there. We're developing our design collection as a new area, but trying to go back in time as well as looking at contemporary design nationally as well as locally. So we do see it as a national collection, the way that we reflect our programming and displays, but obviously underpinned very much by Melbourne sensibility throughout. The big thing for us then is reach. So it's a very strong education program, always has been in that building, but for, uh, talking about Australian stories, also online. Very, very strong pickup with educators and children and families. And so going forward, it would be maintaining that, maybe shifting some of those stories, maybe telling some of the tougher stories that haven't been told, making sure that design is woven through more actively because it's a great city for design and it tends to be traditionally been overlooked. And being open to new interpretations of the collections and Australian identity and history, which is constantly being contested and re-evaluated. And we have to be big enough and open enough to hear that and see how we can convey that through those displays. So what can visitors expect to see when all things uh, being equal, we can reopen? We're going to reopen with an amazing survey of a local artist, Destiny Deacon, the show titled after her. It's her first solo show in over 15 years. Destiny was actually from 
the current Strait, but moved here as a very young child and spent her career here as one of our most respected contemporary practitioners. She's represented Australia in major international events as well as nationally, but this is the first time she's had a survey of this scale in her own city. So, you know, it's over 100 works, a 30-year career. It's powerful. Political work talks about identity and race and culture and stereotypes, discrimination, and there's a sort of a dark humour that underpins all of that. It's engaging, but it's also reminding us that we all have a different history in this city and how we're perceived in the community varies. So we're very proud of it. It's something that I'd really recommend for people. Following that, we're doing another show that has an Indigenous focus, what we're calling um, Big Weather. It's looking at all the different weather systems and the incredible knowledge and sophisticated appreciation that Aboriginal and Torres Strait people have for weather. So trying to convey to probably about 75 different artists a take on how the reading of the environment has been told many times over by this category of artists and it can be expressed through photography or film, weaving or sculpture. There's a whole range of ways, all painting of course. So that's a collection-based show but a, a very interesting topic and theme done by a, a wonderful Indigenous curator that we have on staff. We've also delayed and we're representing our Top Arts exhibition for 2020. This is just an exhibition that every year 12 students who studies art has the ability to be included into. They go through a sort of competitive round of what people have produced the year prior and a whole group of educators from across the system look across the entire state and select what they believe are the most compelling for that year. So of course everyone studying art at school wants to see who's made it and what constitutes you know, interesting and valuable art and it's incredibly important for the student body. And, you know, it's interesting how many general visitors also really enjoy it because it's a great way to see what 17 and 18-year-olds are worried about or thinking about at that time in their life. That will be on as soon as we reopen. And there's also an online hub that uh, we do that is very good for students to look at portfolios and things like that. And then, of course, over at our other building, we'll be getting prepared for a major international contemporary show uh, called the NGV Triennial, which will open around December. You've often described, in fact, just a few moments ago, how NGV Australia has the nation's largest Indigenous art collections. What can First Nations art and artists teach us in the context of contemporary art? Well, it's always tricky not to generalise because when you're talking Indigenous art and artists and designers, we're talking such a very broad and large group of practitioners today and, of course, in the past, going back thousands of years, in fact. But in terms of our collections, going back uh, a couple of hundred years, what we, we tend to find that is, I suppose, if you were to generalise, that you know, Indigenous artists are very much about knowledge, cultural meaning, sharing of stories and things that matter, often connected to strong understanding of identity and cultural inheritance of knowledge. But it seems to vary whether you're talking about a, a you know a Cory artist working in Melbourne or a, an artist working up on the Tiwi Islands. To me, it's an area that is very much about authenticity and frankness and honesty. So whether it's talking about their, their country, the, the place that they were born and raised and their, their connections to family through that, or whether they're talking about what it means to be discriminated against as an urban Indigenous person, for example, it tends to be a rawness and a connection that I find really works for me to understand what they're wanting to communicate. And that's important part of making art is that you're able to convey your message clearly. And I find Indigenous artists do that very, very effectively and powerfully. We're blessed in Australia to have this incredible group of artists that continue to inspire and, and produce new styles of work constantly around the country. So speaking of, you know, 
fresh and new and, and exciting. What themes and techniques uh, are you seeing coming through contemporary art? I think what we're seeing more and more of, and it goes to what we were saying earlier, is that uh, you know artists are increasingly becoming very strong, active voices reflecting current views. So I think there's a lot of artists that are talking about environment at the moment, for example. They're being particularly great champions in that particular field, and then a number of specific groups set up now for artists to just convey that as a message. But also, you know, anything around identity and even just societal shifts, uh, we're seeing more and more of. But also I think as artists are so well-travelled and connected to what their peers are doing around the world, I think you're seeing here as Australian artists and Melbourne artists, I see it all the time, this great understanding of technique and quality and things that our work really does hold up, both in terms of its messaging, but also in terms of its physical ability as an object to be covetable and, and valuable long-term. Melbourne's also a great city for things like fashion, for jewellery making, industrial design, architecture. We're a big complex community when we talk about our creative culture. It's not just painting and sculpture, and that's the challenge for us, to continue to try and reflect that richness wherever we can. So one topic that's dominated many of our conversations, uh, Tony, over the last little while has been COVID-19 and the uh, enormous uh, disruption. Well, that, that understates it really, that the pandemic has, has brought. And I was speaking a little while ago and you mentioned that in your move to providing online accessibility, you benefited from something like 12 million sets of eyeballs on, on your work. I'm really keen to understand your pivot at this time towards maintaining accessibility engagement. It was really interesting. When, when we closed, we, we closed quite quickly. The first major state gallery to close in the country. And we just felt it was a public health issue and we had to do it immediately. And we did. We had great support from government to just, just shut down quickly. And that same day, and it was, you know, it's quite a hard thing to do. And we were midway through a major exhibition and everything, but we just felt it was the right thing to do. In tandem with that happening, I had another group of staff talking about responsibility to continue to engage throughout this time. And literally the day we were shutting down, we developed and launched a new hashtag, NGV Every Day. And that was this sort of commitment that we all felt very strongly about at the time, that we have to maintain you know, a, a visibility and a voice for the community during such a moment of trauma and crisis for many people and fear. And art is often such a, a comfort for so many people. I mean, you're talking such a diverse group of people too, in terms of remote and rural Victorians as well as you know, people who are feeling isolated in Melbourne from family members and so on. We can sit there and provide a lot of comfort, but we can also break a lot of rules. We can start doing more long-form writing than we would normally do. We can do multiple posts a day where we might only do three a week because that's the theory when you're in a normal mode of operation. All of that went out the window. We just said, let's just get out there and be active and, and think of as many exciting things as possible we can do. So whether they're virtual tours, courses online, uh, drawing classes, you know, artists inviting us into their home once a week, curator-led live tours, uh, we're going to start doing Friday night DJ music events to make up for the fact that we can't do them on site anymore, but at least you can pretend to and do it at home. There's a whole lot of things. It's been amazing seeing how creative and ambitious and hardworking the staff have been doing this and how many creative friends have wanted to be a part of it. I've personally never felt so connected to an audience because I, I do a weekly message to you know, tens of thousands of members that we have and they tend to write back and give me feedback on what's worked and what hasn't, but also talking about the importance of 
this kind of communication to them at this particular time. And you learn a lot about people's fears and, 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 and passions for what we do and the responsibility and accountability that we have for them as well. So it's been a real eye-opener. It's been exciting for us. People have all said they know the collection better than they've ever known it to be before. They've also learned about areas that they thought they previously had zero interest in and now have shifted their thinking because people have had more time or they're just more receptive to learning and thinking about other places, other worlds, other people. The result's been extraordinary. We've had a lot of international press listing us as one of the key digital contributors in the cultural sector at this time, um, which has resulted in even more growth. I mean, there was a week where 25% of our market was um, North American because it had a big rap in the US media, one of the top things to do. BBC did a similar thing. The Chinese media has done similar things recently. It's completely unexpected success, I have to say. Not that it's... A, I don't believe in my, my colleagues to deliver great things, but we didn't set out to become sort of digital champions. We just set out to, to serve our audience and get as much content out as we possibly could. But it's taught us so much about what this medium can do for us that we certainly won't go back to life as it was. We'll certainly now be in tandem sharing a lot more digital assets than we ever have before. So it's very exciting. And, and I feel like it's been incredibly liberating as well. So how will this new capability and these really positive experiences you've had, how will that reinforce or improve the physical experience when you can reopen? Oh, it's a good question because I think it will be enhanced. If you think about it, now that you can become more sort of digitally aware of how we provide a service, if you can therefore rely on us to make sure that there's information pre or post a visit, so you know, I'm going in with my family to go and check out exhibition why, I'll, I'll look up something online, I'll look, I can read a story before I go, or I can reflect with this on, with my family and friends once I've had the experience based on the content that the gallery's delivered. So it's about adding more layers, more depth of understanding and awareness, if you want that, than we've ever done before, because clearly there's an appetite for it. There's a, a huge appetite for it, I have to say. Yeah, I want us to think more laterally about how it can enhance the real experience, and in no way will deplete from the real experience. People hankering to come back and look at their favourite objects or look at exciting new things and they want to see technique and finish and patina and texture and all those other things. So there's no way that by doing this we're at risk of depleting an on-site audience. We're just going to be more meaningful because there'll be more more awareness of of what it all means. You described to me, uh, last time we we talked about the subject, you described to me that that schools had accessed your collection digitally in unprecedented numbers because of the the pandemic. Do you want to unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, it's been great. I mean, one of the great statistics that's come out of recent weeks is that 25% of the schools that have actually come on these virtual excursion programs are schools that have previously never visited us before. So they've found that by having no physical barrier, no barrier to cost can be an issue, that they're able to just you know, log in and off they go. Um, we have educators there. We have a whole raft of options for, for what teachers and students may be looking for. But once they've found what they, what they want, they're coming in very, very large numbers and it's great to see new schools joining as well. I think we've had over 16,000 students just in the recent couple of months. And I know we've had at least 720 teachers registered for content. It's very, very active and obviously coveted by these, these communities. This, this is on top of what we're doing for kids and families that are separate to that, which are you know, learning at home and, and, and doing their own free time. So, yeah, it's a, it's a vital market for us. We have great support from education providers in the state. They see that we take this as a very 
core part of our business. And, you know, we want every student to have an awareness and a comfort with the NGV so that when they leave, they'll want to come and see us when they're an adult and bring their own families in the future. It's called Fed Square. In a happier time before the pandemic, we would expect about 10 million visitors a year. It is, in fact, the most visited venue uh, for visitors to Victoria. And increasingly, I think it's it's becoming a stepping off point for so many of the experiences that define Melbourne. So heading south across to uh, St Kilda Road to NGV, east to the sports precinct, west for retail, north uh, across that lovely, much-anticipated crossing at uh, Flinders Street into Hosier Lane to the culinary precinct of Collins Quarter and uh, the Lanes and and Flinders Lane. You know, we're really trying to position this place. We've had this discussion, you and I, Tony. We've tried to position this place as a way in which those experiences are accessible um, and we can sort of concierge. We've talked about curating the square with a view to amping up those experiences, bringing people in and and moving them around. How do you think we could work together to realise that vision? We've got a lot of shared values. We we care about the positioning of the city and making it accessible and safe and comfortable for people. So I think how we, certainly customer service standards and making sure that we're all aware of what each other offers is very important. I think the cultural institutions continuing to find ways in which we can have shared content. We're already doing a fair bit in that space with some shared programming, particularly around Indigenous content with the Cory Heritage Trust and ACME. But, you know, continuing to look at ways we can complement each other outside of standard business hours is something that in the future we'd love to be looking at and working with you and your teams. There's a lot of ongoing potential. I mean, we're already working well together, but I think it's um, a bottomless pit once we know that we can all fully reignite and start to share what we know everyone's been missing. Moments like this do now allow us to pause and reflect on how fortunate we are to have a square that is inclusive and really values what we all do. So I think you'll find that we're busting to look at new ways to make it easy to bounce from one to the other as you also get past all the food outlets and all the other great content on the virtual wall and all those kind of things. So we're certainly very fired up to continue to reinvent ourselves with you guys and take it from there well we're excited too and um and i think uh, i think the potential is unlimited tony yeah. if there was one thing just one thing that came out of the pandemic as we go back to normal when we go back to normal if there was one thing one improvement that you would like to draw from this experience in our our programming going forward what would that be i think it would be to continue to maintain more visibility and content online. What I've learned from this is that, you know, we have a very fractured community. We have very, very different needs and experiences and times in our life. The one thing that they can easily access is a computer at home to look up things. I know I've said it a lot during this conversation, but you cannot underestimate the power of the digital aspect of the business. And I don't want that to be forgotten as we get excited about seeing people back in our buildings. So that would be the one major thing for me. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday, and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care, and we'll see you next Wednesday.